This is the Leadership Hour with Steve Adubato and my colleague, Mary Gamba. We're talking about leadership, every aspect of leadership, management, communication, conflict resolution, running great meetings, getting over your fear of dealing with difficult situations and a whole range of other issues. It is an honor to be with you once again on AM 970, the great radio station in New York. It's 2 p.m. on a Sunday if you're listening to us live on the radio. You can also catch our podcast, Mary. How do people do that? Absolutely. They can subscribe to our podcast either on Apple iTunes or on Google Play, which is very exciting. That is, technology is amazing, it changing is amazing. every day. Uh, website, Mary, yes, would be? stand-deliver.com. And then they can also follow us on Facebook, Steve Adubato, Ph.D., and that's A-D-U-B-A-T-O. What about the Twitter thing? Is just Steve Adubato without the Ph.D. Wait, why are you taking away my Ph.D.? I don't know. I didn't set it up. I just know that that's what it is. All right, that's it. So, listen, we're talking about, uh, we've talked about so many aspects of leadership, but one of the areas that we need to spend more time on is a whole question. People go, oh, leadership in corporations and profit-making entities. Yeah. But those who are running not-for-profit organizations have to be great leaders as well for a variety of reasons. And we are pleased, honored to be joined by a very good friend of ours we've been working with for many years. And in the other part of our life, we run a not-for-profit production company affiliated with public broadcasting. It's called the Caucus Educational Corporation. And one of our production state of affairs is the second half hour of the Leadership Hour here on AM 970. And that programming at the Caucus Educational Corporation would not be possible without major foundations and corporations. And one of those leaders joins us right now. She is Marsha Atkin, who is executive director and chief executive officer of a terrific organization called the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey. Marsha, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing very well, thanks, Steve. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. By the way, Marsha, let everyone know what the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey actually is. Sure. The Healthcare Foundation is a private foundation that was founded when Newark Beth Israel Medical Center was sold to Barnabas Health back in 1996. And our mission is to connect the most underserved, low-income people in the greater Newark area to the best possible health care. And the other part of our mission is to connect people in the Jewish community, vulnerable people in the local Jewish community to quality health care, because it was that community that founded Newark Beth Israel Hospital way back in the 1900s. Well said. Marshall, let me ask you this. You, we're a nonprofit, the Caucus Educational Corporation. You have not just provided us with significant grants, but you've also given guidance, support, insight, feedback, to us, but I also know you do that with countless other not-for-profit organizations and their leaders. Question, do you think there's anything significantly different about being a leader in the not-for-profit community versus a leader at a big money-making operation, Fortune 500 company? Well, I do. You know, I've I've never been a leader in the for-profit world, but I think that in the non-profit world, you have to understand very well the mission and the culture of your organization and be able to interact with the board as a staff person, be able to interact with the board and understand where they're coming from and help move them along and help them understand the changes in the environment. After all, you're not there to make money. You're there to fulfill a mission. And the shape and the character of that mission are the crucial things in the work that you do. You know what's interesting about that, Marsha? What about if at the Healthcare Foundation, and you funded so many terrific organizations, what about when you know that the mission 
the work of the not-for-profit is literally, I mean, just so incredibly important, whether it's dealing with poverty, dealing with women who have been uh, victims of abuse. We're doing a series in cooperation with the Healthcare Foundation on bullying and abuse right now as we speak. They're doing all the right things, Marsha. They care so much. Their heart is in the right place, but they lack at the highest levels the leadership skills to make it all work. What happens when you see that? What do you do? Oh, you know, I think that part of the way we make decisions about granting is looking at the capacity of the organization, the capacity to fulfill their mission, and in so doing, fulfill our mission. And if we don't have confidence in the leadership from the get-go, we may give them suggestions about who to talk to, who to interact with, how to improve their organization, but we're not going to fund them if we don't think that they can be successful, if we don't think that they can make good use of our money. That's so interesting. We're talking to Marsha Atkin, Executive Director, Chief Executive Officer of the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey. Mary Gamba, jump in. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the challenges that all organizations face is bringing in dollars and getting people to buy into their mission. How do you find out and how do you really get deep into the weeds, as Steve and I like to say, in terms of the various nonprofits and other folks that you're looking to potentially support with your dollars? What types of questions do you ask? How do you really get to the heart of what their mission is, and how do you know that it's going to be a successful partnership? We have, first of all, two highly skilled, really wonderful senior program officers in our organization. Both of them have been with the Healthcare Foundation for at least 10 years, and they know how to ask great questions. So when a proposal comes into us, I read it first, and if it's not totally off mission, you know, if, if I don't think that it, there's no way it's going to succeed, I'll delegate it to one of those two program officers. Um, and we have a third person who sometimes takes grants, but the two of them are the main program officers. They read the proposals carefully. They talk to the leadership. They visit the organization if it's a new applicant and have really deep, important conversations about the work that's being done, about what they've done in the past, what their successes and failures have been, how they're going to keep that project going once the Healthcare Foundation funding has ended, because honestly, we can't fund the same thing forever, and we don't want to put money somewhere that isn't such a priority for the organization that they're going to make it their business to keep it going, assuming that it's a success right. you know, and, and that it's worth continuing. So I think you know that's one way we do it. The other way we do it is once it gets to the point where the program officers and I together feel that the trustees should learn about this proposal, we set up what we call a site visit, which can be either at the agency, if there's something to really see there, or at our office, if it's just really just a conversation. And we have extremely involved trustees who come and have conversations with the applicants as well. So We've they been there. The proposals. We've been yeah, there, Marcia. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not easy. It's challenging. And to go to your point, I'm sorry for interrupting, Marcia. How important are the quote-unquote communication skills of the leaders of the not-for-profits who come before the Healthcare Foundation, your trustees, your executive staff? How important are those quote-unquote communication skills in that setting? I think communication skills are key in so many aspects of the work that we all do. Look, I can read a proposal and say, this is a really poorly written proposal, but there's a kernel here that I think is good. 
and maybe I'll delegate it to the program officers to explore it further. I can read a proposal that's just really poorly written and say, mm, if they can't express what their goals are, if they can't tell me how they're going to succeed, you know, what success looks like, then maybe they don't know. And so <laughs> I may just say, let's decline this. Because of the way it was written? How is that a leadership trait? Sorry, Marsha, for interrupting again. How is it a leadership trait? How is the ability to succinctly, clearly, compellingly make your case a leadership trait? I think that communication and being able to do what you just said is crucial. I really do. I think that if you can't let people know what you're doing, what you plan to do, how you're going to do it, then how is your organization going to succeed? <laughs> how are you going to attract money if you're raising money? How are you going to attract support, community involvement if you can't make that case? Absolutely. And if you can't make that case externally, what job are you doing even internally with your, <laughs> within your own organization to make sure that your team is outwardly giving the correct message? So if you can't get it on the outside, you're not going to get that buy-in on the inside either. Right. And that's one of the things that we look for in an applicant is whether there's a champion in the organization. What do you mean a champion? What do you mean by that? Somebody who is capable and who wants to, who is passionate about advocating for the project. Maybe that person is not the top leadership in the organization, but is a project manager, you know, that they will be able to communicate with the top leadership of their organization and their board the importance of this project, the importance of fundraising for it, the importance of hiring the right people. And if there isn't that person, then the probability that that project will succeed is slim. You know, Marcia, another follow-up on leadership traits in not-for-profits. And I'm not saying this to brag, which would be very easy for me to do because I do that too much. Um, <laughs> but I'm a good fundraiser. You know that. I know that. I grew up in a family where my dad, who ran a very large not-for-profit for many years that Marsha knows very well and was incredibly supportive of, and my sister, Michelle, runs now. So fundraising is in our family. But I will tell you where I really have struggled, and I'm not great, and this is an important leadership trait. I'm not good when it comes to finances. I think, Steve, that you have to know what they're good at and what they're not good at and maybe find people to fill in those gaps in their organization. Well, talk about that a little bit because I'll often say, well, I work to raise X amount of dollars. And then all of a sudden the team will come back and say, Steve, let's talk about the expense side of things. I'm like, no, I don't really want to talk about that. I would like to talk about how much money I was <laughs> yeah. able to bring in. They go, Steve, yeah, I know, but we're running a bit of a deficit. How could we run a deficit if I keep, I raised that much? Mm -hmm. No, Steve, you need to understand. There's bills that need to get paid. What bills? What? And, and the point I'm making is that it's been a blind spot for me that I've tried to work on. It's not like I haven't had a few years to do this, but Mary and the team have said, look, this is what these productions cost. This is what it costs to go out on an on-location shoot. Mm -hmm. This is what the edit, we're here with our top production leader, Brian Brodeur from East Main Media. And we talk about this with Brian all the time. Like, what does it cost to do that? Mm -hmm. And like, Steve, you have no idea. And you act like you don't want to know. Or you say, let's do it on the cheap. Well, okay. <laughs> I got my iPhone. We could uh, record and that And then all segment. of a sudden, what we put on the air doesn't look like what the funders paid for or the audience wants it to see. It looks like the Blair Witch Project. Oh, is. yeah. Thanks, Mary. Appreciate that. So in, from my perspective, you've made two very important points, okay? One important point is 
that you have to know what you don't know. Interesting. You know, the areas that you're weak in, and you have to get people like Mary to be there to be the point person for those things and to keep reminding you and telling you and teaching you. And the other side of that coin is that you have to be willing to learn and listen. So interesting. Marcia, you've used the phrase delegate. You've delegated to senior program officers. Does that imply also you coach and mentor them as well? Absolutely. How so? Absolutely. Well, I think that it depends on what you're doing. If you're getting a project to investigate and you go in and you learn about the project and you see so many good things there, sometimes, though, there are negatives as well. And you get emotionally involved in the good things at times. And it's important to have someone like me, and you know, we have a small organization, so in our organization, it would be me or it would be the other program officer, perhaps, to talk to and to say, look, this is what I see. These are the good things. These are the difficult things. And I might say, well, why don't you call so-and-so or why don't you speak to so-and-so or ask them this question or ask them that question? And that helps them get a more balanced view and come to a, a really good decision about whether this should be put before the trustees or not. So interesting. As we wrap up with Marsha, I want to also say this. It's not in her job description, I'm sure, as the CEO of the Healthcare Foundation. We're talking to Marsha Atkin, who is the executive director and CEO of the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, one of the major foundations funding a whole range of important projects in and around Newark and the broader Essex County area that they've had a great impact. It's not in your job description to give advice and feedback to grantees, of which the Caucus Educational Corporation that I've led for over 25 years happens to be a part of. But you have, in fact, without me asking, unsolicited, given advice, given feedback, told me where you thought we were coming up short, told me that, listen, if you keep doing the same thing the way you're doing it and we don't see the impact you're having in a way that's connected to our mission, we're not funding you. You've had to be very direct. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes when there's a difficult situation, the program officer and I will be on the phone with the agency together. And maybe I'll take the conversation because they don't feel like they can be tough enough sometimes. <laughs> you can. And I'll do it. And I'll hang up the phone and one of them will look at me and say, you were really tough on them. And I said, yeah, but I had to be. And they said, yeah, I know. You know, so I think it's a learning process. Look, I learned from them, too because they're so skilled at asking those questions and they have a lot more experience doing that part of the job than I do. But on the other hand, I have other skills that I bring to the table and I hope that we respect each other's skills. And that's why I think our agency does such a good job. As we wrap up with Marsha Atkin, I will say this. One of the leadership traits that she has in spades is the ability and the willingness to give direct hard to hear, but important feedback, a theme we've been talking about a lot. I've known Marsha a long time. I don't think Marsha worries that much as to whether someone likes what she had to say or not. She just truly believes that that is what is necessary to be said in order for that person and or that organization to get better. And that's a great leadership trait. Anyone who wants to be popular and liked all the time will never say those things. Fair to say, Marsha? It is fair to say, but I think that it's not necessarily a skill or a trait that you're born with. I know for hmm. me, if you had talked to me about that 30 years ago, 
I'm revealing my age. Really? I probably would not have been that person, but you develop the confidence and the skills along the way to make that happen. So well said. Hey, Marsha, first of all, thank you for joining us on the Leadership Hour on AM 970 as well as on our podcast. Thank you, more importantly, for the work that you and your colleagues do at the Healthcare Foundation supporting initiatives and efforts that make a difference in the lives of so many people every day. And needless to say, thank you for having the confidence in our team as well. Mary, final words? Well, absolutely, Steve. Thank you for the work that you do. You do wonderful things. With a great team. Yeah, Mary? thank you so much, Marsha. It's great having you on. Marsha, take care. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Steve Adubato here with Mary Gamba. This is the Leadership Hour. You know, I've been on the phone with Marsha. And by the way, this isn't just about not-for-profit leadership and running a foundation. It's about more than that. She's been on the phone with me saying, Steve, look, this isn't going to happen. We're not going to be able to fund this grant proposal if you don't do this, this, and this. We don't see right now what the particular benefit is and how it's tied to the mission of the Healthcare Foundation. And we've gone back and said, okay. And by the way, if we can't meet that, then we don't submit a grant. But what I'm trying to get at is if I realize we've fallen short, which means I've fallen short, and we need to improve and tweak and be more focused and strategic, she's saying she didn't always have that skill and or ability to do that. Leaders keep growing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one of the things that she said is, you know, leaders must be willing to learn and listen. And that really stood out for me that you need to keep growing. And I think, too, I don't know if you're so consciously doing it as you're growing. You and I talk about the fact that we have a long history together. I was not always as confident as I am today. I was not always as able and willing to give and receive feedback, got defensive, or was fearful of giving feedback to my colleagues. I don't know if it's just I don't have the patience anymore for <laughs> as I get older. Is that what Jersey traffic does to you? It does. Takes away and, your patience. <laughs> and, and just experience of seeing the negative effect and the negative impact of not giving that feedback, of seeing the result of that and how much quicker and better things go if you Or give. they don't if that person cho chooses to or cannot receive it. Right. Because they right. can't be with us. Exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the things, again, about revealing age, and as Marcia said, that I think does come with age. I think that it's a lot harder. Not always. Right. I, not I work, always. I work with people older than me, which is hard oh, to imagine, sure. who still can't receive it. Exactly. Will not receive it. Right. They are convinced they have it right. Yeah, but it's even less likely that someone in their 20s is going to have the ability. Maybe they'll have the ability to receive feedback because I do think that's a confidence thing. They'll listen. But to give feedback in a confident way that maybe is hard to hear for someone else, because I think the younger someone is, the more that they want to be liked and accepted in a group. I think that's just a very natural emotion that people want to have when they're younger. In the time we have left, I'm curious about this. Marsha Atkin raised a lot of great issues. Uh, real quick, Mary, before I get into this, let folks know how they can connect with us. Absolutely. They can actually subscribe to our podcast to hear. They actually subscribe? They what do. You mean subscribe? What do, we, um, what do we charge them? I only learned about this recently. Um, there's this thing called a podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and you can go to Apple iTunes and subscribe to various podcasts. What's it cost? If you're in iTunes, you can get it for free. It's like for no free. Kidding. Yeah. And then Google Play. You could also give us a good rating if you like what you hear. And so far, we have very good ratings. Right. So and that's if you don't, keep it to and yourself. And if you don't, then don't put any stars up there. <laughs> 
And if they would like to comment on anything that they've heard, they can go to our Facebook at Steve Adubato, PhD, and that is A-D-U-B-A-T-O, or follow you on Twitter, Steve Adubato, without the PhD. Yeah, good yeah. stuff. So here's what I want to raise. So you and I have had lots of conversations. Mary and I do a lot of, I'll just call it crisis mm-hmm. management. Companies bring us in to deal with difficult situations. We're not the legal side, but there are lawyers involved. We deal with those lawyers. But we often advise CEOs, other top executives, when things go wrong, as to how to deal with a crisis, a problem, a situation. Is it fair to say that we've had clients over the years that we've attempted to give direct, specific feedback to, which includes some pretty basic Mm -hmm. rules, which are, number one, never lie, tell the truth, Mm -hmm. own it as quickly as possible, don't spend an inordinate amount of time explaining what other people don't understand into the weeds. No, but you don't understand what happened was, by the way, you know the expression, if you're explaining, you're losing, Mm -hmm. right? Exactly. And we've had a lot of clients, significant number of clients, resist it. They want to explain. They want to defend. Then they won't take it. They will not take it on. What do you think it's about? Human nature. It is our human nature to want to be right, to want to explain ourselves out of something. There's no way I made a mistake, Steve. And even if I did make a mistake, here's the reason why. And by and the way, someone had it out for me. Yeah. Yeah. What's the difference? It doesn't matter. Uh, the court of public opinion is what it is. Uh, but the, that's not fair. It doesn't matter. Life isn't fair. So the sooner that you own whatever the mistake is, it could be small, it could be huge, you immediately own it, apologize, whether you even think you need to or not, apologize, and not a lame apology. Is that fake? It needs to be a genuine apology, not, oh, I'm so sorry that what I said made you I'm feel... I'm sorry if you were hurt by what I said. Yeah. You said that before. That sounds... It is that rolled fake? off. That is so fake because... Why is that right fake? Right then, you're putting it on the person... I'm sorry if you were offended by what I said because you mm-hmm. clearly are a bit sensitive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or or the famous, you know, with all due respect, which is usually <laughs> whatever's coming after it is not with any respect whatsoever. Wow. Yeah. So, and we're not talking about you and I here or anything. We're just no. talking like theoretically. People you know. we hear constantly yeah. and deal with it constantly. <laughs> so, and then once you apologize, immediately say what you're going to do to make it right. Why is that part so important? It's so important because it shows that you actually care enough to try to make it right. And it may not be good enough for the person. They may never forgive you for whatever the it was. But what is most important is it shows that you actually cared enough to attempt to make it right and also to do whatever you're going to need to do to not make that same mistake again. Because there's nothing worse than even after somebody's apologized and then a month goes by, six months go by, whatever the mistake was, they make that same mistake again. You know, take this away from leadership, excuse me, take it away from crisis leadership for a second. And I know I often bring up our kids because I find it fascinating, the responsibility of being a parent to try to teach your kids to be the best people they can be, Mm -hmm. which is a euphemism for leadership, right? One of our, our, our kids, Chris, just one of the sweetest, nicest kids you want to meet. But let's just say there are things that happen and Chris will forget his book bag at school. He'll forget his jersey going to a football game. Mm. He played football for 
Seton Hall prep, you know, I'm taking him to the game, we get to the field, and he goes, no, Dad, I think I forgot my jersey, hmm. which means he's now not going to play because he can't get dressed. And, uh, Dad, I forgot this. Or, oh, what about homework, Chris? I don't really have much. And so then he's on, what's the game they're playing all the time? Uh, it's a fortnight. Yeah, so he's doing fortnight, except he does have homework, and then he's doing it at 10 o'clock at night. So I said, Chris, the other day, I said, Chris, here's the deal. Mary, how dare you cough while we're on the radio? So um, I say to him, hey, Chris, we need to talk about the homework situation. And it's not about getting great grades. I like him to get great grades, but I like him to work really hard and be accountable and responsible. But I, I often think about this, and I'll say, Chris, this isn't acceptable when you come home and mess around and go on Fortnite or play video games or talk to your friends. We're paying for you to go to a really good school. You have a responsibility to do your homework. I don't have much. Dad, I'm sorry. And he finally, there's a point to this. He'll say, sorry, Dad. And he thinks it's over. <laughs> because I'm sorry, Dad. You said to take responsibility. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, Chris. What are you going to do? I'm going to work harder. Why doesn't that work? It doesn't work because what exactly— By the way, if you're still choking and can't I'm talk. I'm still choking. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's Brian, fine. Jump in I and apologize for point. choking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, you remind me of my 13-year-old boy, Alex. You know, I go through the same thing, so, right? So, hold on. You have ages— <laughs> They are 13 and 16. And, and we have 14 and soon to be 16. Exactly. You've got 13. Yeah. Must go be ahead. the teenage so, thing. So, if you get, I'm sorry, why is that not good enough? Well, We're talking well, leadership, yeah. right? Oh well, my version is I know, I know, I know, right? So as a parent, and that how that dovetails to leadership, it's the responsibility angle that that's what we want to instill in our kids, and certainly that's what we want to instill in our organizations and our teams, right? So, you know, I'm sorry, I know it's a blow off, and it's not <laughs> taking it down the road to where it needs to be, right? Okay, so stay on that. I'm sorry, I know, I know, I know. Dad, it won't happen again, and I press on. Mm -hmm. Chris, okay, what exactly are you going to do? Uh, I'm going to work harder. No, Chris, what are the hours you're going to do your homework when you come home? And then what period of time on Fortnite? And I can't monitor all this, but you're trying to, right? And my wife says to me, Jennifer will say, why do you press so hard on this? And my response will be, because he's 14 now, and I work with 44-year-olds, 54-year-olds, 34-year-olds who were saying the same thing. Exactly. She goes, well, that's ridiculous. You're taking your work in leadership coaching and you're putting it on a 14-year-old. He will mature. Mm -hmm. He will grow up. It's not the way it's always going to be. And I say that's a prayer and wishful thinking, and I hope that too. But wishful thinking is not a plan. Wishful thinking is not a plan. Not and a strategy. It's incumbent upon parents to, and it's funny, I used to have this conversation with my then 12-year-old when he was in seventh grade, when he would call me and say, I left this at home, I left that at home. <laughs> so finally, I instilled and stuck to a three-strike-you're-out rule. By the third time, if you call me and you don't have something, I am not bringing it to school. What? The fourth time he called, tears I'm sure, shooting out of his eyes at this point, I stuck to my guns. I did not bring what he needed to school. And I'm not even joking. Now he's in eighth grade. We're well into the school year. He has never called me again. Why? Because he realized that it was not a threat. And that was one of the other things, too. A year About a year ago, he goes, oh, that's an idle threat. He said that to me. He said? Mm-hmm. 
Yep, that's an idle threat. And I said, oh, really? So I think a part of leadership is saying what you mean and then sticking to it. No matter how much it hurts, even if you're crying at the same time that they're crying. How about they're hating you at the time? I don't really care. You're, care. <laughs> you're, you're not there to be liked. You're not there to be loved. You are there to teach yeah. them to be a responsible adult. And if that means, and again, talking, going back to the video games, they do need to learn time management. We all have things that we want to do for fun, but the work has to get done first. Well, stay on that because my wife and I also have this. Jen, I know you're listening right now, maybe live, maybe on the podcast, and I am not going to back down on this. My wife will often run the stuff to the school. Uh, our son has forgotten this or forgotten that. By the way, uh, Nick, our older son who's turning 16, how about the day you wore Chris's pants to school? And let's just say you're not even close to the same size. <laughs> and he couldn't get it past his knees. His, wow. He's got. How do you get out uh, the door and sit in the car and get to school and not realize until he was at school that he had on the wrong pants? I'm going to ask that question later. But he got to Seton Hall mm -hmm. and had his brother's pants on. And then my wife had to run his pants mm -mm. back to school. Jen, you need to stop running things to the school effective be, let immediately. Him, let him be embarrassed High school, all day. High school, forget about it. I will not. And you could ask Will. He's a junior in high school now. I have never once, if he forgets it, he knows, don't even bother calling. Doesn't matter. You won't eat? Figure it out. You won't eat. Don't have any money. Doesn't matter. Borrow money, figure it out. Forgot my books. Doesn't matter. Does I'm going to fail my matter. test. I don't care. But <laughs> yes, you do then, care. No, and I don't. by the way, why is this about leadership? It's all about leadership because they need to learn that there are consequences for their actions at an early age because then that will be applied to other situations later on. If you are always there to bail them out. If we helicopter in. And this goes right to leadership. If you helicopter in by helicopter parent, that means or a helicopter leader, you're hovering over your employees. Don't worry, I'll fix it. You're never going to teach them how to truly own what they need to do. But what about the thing? What about if the mistake? Oh, here's the tricky thing. Mary and I, this is real. I'll often say, let it play out. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid of this because if someone's mistake, like you talk about our kids, that's challenging enough. Someone in the organization is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. You and I will see that they haven't planned properly. It's not going to work out well. Mm -hmm. Do we just let the thing fail, which then potentially hurts the organization, or do we helicopter in to fix it and then try to explain to them later, oh, here's what why we jumped in and we fixed it. But the reality is, do they really learn unless there are any real consequences? If it is the first time that this said thing happened and if it is going to seriously hurt the organization, absolutely you need to jump in. Then you teach them the how, the why, the what would have happened if you let it go. Yeah, but you fix it, so I don't really know. If it happens again, then you need to make a serious decision about that employee. Whether you demote them, whether that means you put them on probation, that's when that whole idea of feedback that we talk about comes into play. That is so interesting. You know, the final, in the final minute we have, I work with a variety of clients who say they're afraid to do that with some of their people. This is great. They say, I'm afraid to be that challenging of some of our people, particularly younger. Again, it's usually younger. Why? Well, because they haven't had much of that growing up. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid, and they're, and they're really good at this one thing. And if I press them too hard, they might leave. <laughs> I go, and? and? And they go, yeah, I know, but we need them over the next season to do this, this, and this. I go, hold on. So you're going to let this thing pass, not have a real conversation, not let them potentially fail because you need a warm body there? Yeah, because it's so hard to recruit. 
You, you you know I'm not making this up. No, I know you're not making it up. It's not. And what it's about if they were 15? Somebody taught them something better. Yeah. They might not be dealing it at 25. Parents, <laughs> parents who are out there listening, do not. You could take the call from your child because it could be an emergency. But an emergency is not, hey, I left my book at home. No. Let them fail. Let them fail. Oh, my God. This is okay. Um, I know this is not a parenting show. It's a show on leadership. But I do not see how you can have an honest, real conversation about leadership if we're not talking about parenting and the coaching and the advice and the feedback and the honesty with our kids who say they want to do this, this, and this. But if they're not, co whether it's athletics, well, I'm not, I'm not in the gym, I'm not training, not doing anything else, and then I didn't make the team or I'm not on the first team. Well, yeah, what do you want from me? You didn't do what you're supposed to do. I can't make you work out. I can bring you to the place. What if I didn't get a good grade? And Well, you didn't bring your homework home. You didn't, and you screwed around playing this game. Sorry, tough life. Mary said life is tough. Life is so tough. is leadership. I'm sorry for being so philosophical. I'm sorry for going over time, Brian. Steve Adubato, this has been the Leadership Hour, otherwise known as the Parenting Hour, with mm -hmm. Mary Gamba. Mary, you want to say goodbye? Yeah, goodbye. That's it? That's it. See you next week, folks. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. Hi, I'm Dr. Joseph Marbach. At Georgian Court University, we're committed to educating the public about the importance of higher education and its impact on our communities. That's why we're proud to support the important educational programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at 2 Gateway. Funding has been provided by Georgian Court University, Englewood Health, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, New Jersey Resources, New Jersey Sharing Network, dedicated to saving lives through organ and tissue donation, NJM Insurance Group, and by Adler Aphasia Center, helping stroke and brain injury survivors recover their speech. Promotional support provided by AM970 The Answer and by Jaffe Communications, where business, media, and government converge in New Jersey. Welcome to State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. Once again, we are coming to you from the Agnes Ferris NJTV studio in beautiful Brick City, Newark, New Jersey. It happens to be a rainy day out there today. But uh, I was going to say there are sunny things to talk about, but that whole thing didn't work. We have some challenging <laughs> things to talk about with our good friend Greg Lalavie, who's business manager, International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825, which is... Help folks understand what that uh, is, Greg. 7,100 men and women who operate heavy construction equipment, work on transportation infrastructure, uh, we also uh, maintain and fix equipment. We also mine aggregates. I, I don't know what aggregates are, but that's a whole other uh, story. Rock, sand. So <laughs> Why don't you say that? Why don't you? <laughs> so, but you know what's interesting? Uh, our colleagues at ROINJ, great publication with really interesting news. There was a feature story on you and your colleagues and some others in this industry who are modernizing and dealing with robotics in a different way. Talk about why that's so important. Well, artificial intelligence, mechanization, and robotics is about to take over our industry. As operators of machines, uh, we see it coming into our, our view every day. 
There's GPS control on bulldozers and excavators. There's sophisticated computers on cranes. So we're building an educational platform so that we can teach our current members how to master the technology. And as we bring in new members and apprentices that we dovetail them into what the technology of the day will Dramatically be. Dramatically changes the industry? It completely changes. Are there more jobs, fewer jobs, or different jobs? It's going to be different jobs. Uh, we think about the same number. But uh, over the 122 years of the operating engineers, we saw the changes from steam to diesel. And then we saw the changes of cable manipulation of machines to hydraulics. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is the most dramatic change we'll ever see because, as everybody knows, technology changes so rapidly. Uh, so we want to make sure we have the platform to change with it. By the way, if you want to, very often what we do here in public television, we tell you about something you find, want to find out more. Uh, our team will put up the ROI NJ website. It happens to be on the November 5th. A 2018 edition of uh, ROI. It's a future story on robotics and technology. How about this? You and I talk a lot offline about this quote-unquote gateway tunnel. Where are we and what is the problem? Is it simply money? Well, it's coming down to everybody deciding what they can put in the game. Uh, what to is get it? The Let everybody done. know why. What is it? Why does it matter? Well, the <laughs> gateway tunnel is, is the tunnels from New York to New Jersey. Uh, it carries 200,000 passengers a day, uh, 450 trains between Newark and Penn Station. It's 13% of Manhattan's uh, workforce lives in northern New Jersey along the rail lines. Uh, the, the amount of uh, the GDP is about 20% of the U.S. GDP that travels along there, and the tunnels are 110 years old. We don't have the capacity anymore. Uh, we don't have the capacity, and the, and the capacity we do have is, is aging and in need of repair. Okay. Donald Trump says what about this? Well, originally uh, there was a deal as Governor Christie had left office. It was between New Jersey, New York, and the Obama administration. Sharing expense. Yes. And President Trump uh, said there was no uh, deal in writing, so he didn't acknowledge the deal. Uh, so we're kind of back at the table. Um, since then, Governor Murphy, I think, has made a big move uh, putting up bonding for the portal bridge component of the project. Uh, so hopefully this will get some forward momentum. If it happens, what uh, happens? Well, if it happens, it means property values in northern New Jersey. Uh, that's one of the most important components of making sure that we maintain uh, mobility into Manhattan for people to get to work. Um, it means lots and lots of jobs for our people. Um, it's, it's major, major work, um, but it's necessary and it's critical to the economy. Greg, one of the other things that has come up, and by the way, let me disclose, I'm, I just started a series of leadership and communication seminars for Greg's, or, Greg's organization, full disclosure. Um, there's something else that you've been very outspoken on. And it's like, look, we got this transportation trust fund. We raised the gas tax to put dollars into long-term infrastructure projects, right? Capital investment. And is the money being, quote, diverted into New Jersey Transit, who has massive problems? Is that the thing you're concerned about? Well, the concern is there's $511 million going in from the transportation trust fund into New Jersey Transit. What's wrong with that? Well, the, the law had been that there was a cap on what could be used for salaries. It was 13% or $208 million a year. Um, but the language in this last budget said without limitation uh, when it came to the cap. So we're concerned about how much is going to go into transit and where. Uh, so we're looking forward to annual audits that show us where that yeah, goes. Let, let's break this down outside of the beltway, if you will. Let's get out of the weeds and ask this question. If the dollars get diverted removed from the Transportation Trust Fund for capital road bridges projects to New Jersey Transit, who has serious problems and everybody acknowledges it, 
what happens to the roads, bridges, and capital construction projects? We don't get to fix them as fast as we otherwise would. We lose opportunity for federal matching funds. Uh, we typically get a one-to-one -one from Washington, so five dollar there, a dollar here. Yeah, so five hundred million is a billion in capital construction projects. I mean, if if New Jersey doesn't put up the capital construction bucks, the feds don't put it up either. Exactly. People should care about this outside of your industry. Absolutely. You know, we just went through an election, a uh, federal election, where much of the talk was how New Jersey doesn't get its fair share back from Washington. Um, the one place that we typically did get it was in transportation dollars. And if we squander an opportunity to get our fair share of transportation dollars, uh, our ranking's only going to get worse from, from the bad ranking we already have. Okay, final question on this. To what degree is the New Jersey congressional delegation, which now after the election in the fall of 2018, as a virtually, I mean, Democrats virtually control all of the seats, I believe, except for one. I think it's Chris Smith's, mm -hmm. the only Republican seat. Does that make a difference if the Democrats, quote, control the lower house on this issue? Or is it the president and the U.S. Senate, which is Republican, they don't want it, they're not doing it, and that's it? Well, well transportation's always been a bipartisan issue. Uh, you know, it's been Back Democrat to the Eisenhower administration. Always. And it's been that way historically. Uh, but when you look at the 11th Congressional District, which relies so much on mass transit to get to Manhattan. 11th, excuse me, I believe that's the Mikey Sherrill District. Right. She's new, as we do this, the congressperson-elect. Go ahead. And while she was urging her voters the Sunday before Election Day to get out and vote, uh, one of the things she said to them is, maybe vote in the morning Tuesday if you're going to Manhattan. Let's not rely on New Jersey Transit right now. Meaning she was worried about them coming back yeah, and being able yeah. to vote. And I think that's a very telling uh, remark for now an incoming congresswoman but good in the sense that I think that she'll be uh, very much a hawk on this issue. Greg Lalavi is business manager of an organization called uh, Operating Engineers Local 825. Uh, it's an international union. How many members? Uh, 400,000 nationally. Just a few jobs. A and the industry is changing dramatically as we speak, technology, um, robotics, et cetera. And we're looking, we're looking forward to meeting that, that challenge and being able to master our craft as we have for 120 years. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it, buddy. Stay right here. there. Thank you. All right. This is State of Affairs. We are at the Agnes Veris Studio and NJTV. We'll be right back right after this. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. State of Affairs is pleased to welcome for the first time, will not be the last, uh, Zakia Smith Ellis, New Jersey Secretary of Higher Education. Good to see you. Good to see you. Describe your role. So the Secretary of Higher Education is supposed to provide advice to the governor and really to the state as a whole on the direction of higher education, policy for higher education, and making sure that our students are successful while they're in college. Yeah, affordability, huge issue, right? It is a huge issue, Break especially in New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey actually has a higher tuition rate than many other states uh, when it comes to going to college. People pay more here than they might otherwise, and, and that's a challenge because we want more people to go to college, and if they're scared by the price, then it can be daunting for people. But. Um Madam Secretary, is that what you go by? Oh, whatever. <laughs> no, Let not. me ask you, the Secretary, the, the gap, the racial equity gap as it relates to those who are going, who are not going, who can't afford, who can't afford higher ed. Talk about it. Yeah, so we've got a lot of great things going on in the state. 
great institutions of higher education. Actually, overall, high completion rates. More people graduate here than in other places. But when you break it down by race and income, a lot of people who um, are from lower income backgrounds can't afford to go to college. And mm -hmm. when you look at who goes to college, we have a lot uh, lower college going rate in the racial minority groups and in people who are first in their family to go to college or lower income areas. So we've got to we do to break that down. What do we do to improve it, if you will? I think we've got to increase affordability. So we've got to improve affordability and then we've got to acknowledge it, right? We've got to go to places. I used to be a college counselor, so I used to go to high schools in, in East Boston okay. and uh, help a lot of immigrant kids, a lot of people who don't really have any experience with college, and you've got to help them understand what is it to go to college, what does it mean. It's just a whole culture around going college. You know, it's interesting. We've had people on who have uh, very successful entrepreneurs. Uh, Gary V. Check him out. He's an entrepreneur okay. who's out there. We had him on our other show one-on-one. -on -one. He's like, you know, college is overrated. Because <laughs> you spend all that money, you got a hundred yeah. grand, if not more, in loans. Um, why don't you just go out and be an entrepreneur? Yeah, use yeah. that time, use that yeah. money, use that energy. Yeah. Stop with the studying. It's yeah. not for everyone, yeah. you say. Yeah. So I think um, we know that there's an increasing, the way our economy is, is going, it requires people to have more than a high school diploma now. Like, you know, my dad grew up in Akron, Ohio, and back then, you know, you went to high school, you got a great job working in manufacturing and, you know, tire companies, and those jobs are just not here anymore. The kinds of jobs mm. that are growing are the kinds of things that require you to kind of use more of your brain than your hands, um, or skill. But it has to be something that shows that you know something beyond just the high school diploma, and that's just the way the economy is changing. So, well, that, but is higher ed, the higher ed curriculum, yeah. designed to do that enough? Yeah. Well, I think we need to do more of that. We need to do more of keeping people in college engaged in the world of work. People should have internships. They should have opportunities to understand what it's like to work. But also the value of kind of just going to college. And it doesn't have to be a four-year degree. It can be community college. Does not. College. It doesn't can have be two. Yeah. It can be a two-year degree. It could be a credential. An apprenticeship. So I think of college as kind of anything beyond high school, post-secondary, anything beyond uh, anything beyond high school is really what we need more of today. We're talking about the talking to the New Jersey Secretary of Higher Education, Zakia Smith Ellis. What is 65 by 25? So it's the state's post-secondary attainment goal. The percentage of people in the state, adults, right. who have a post-secondary credential. So something beyond high school, whether it's a certificate or an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree. New Jersey's higher than many other states. Only places are like DC and Massachusetts mm. that are higher than New Jersey at currently. But we're still around 50% right now. So you think about it, only about half the people in the state have anything beyond a, a high school diploma. Mm. We've had several presidents leaders of higher ed institutions who talk about these issues with us. And by the way, go on our website at steveautobotto.org. You can just put in higher education discussion. You'll see some of those conversations. Many of them talk about the brain drain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They talk about how many really, really good students who graduate from high school in the state of New Jersey, I believe more than any other state in the nation, we lose many of those kids to other places. Now, we have, I mean, our kids who are, you know, 14 and 16 right now, they start talking about other places. I'm like, hey, what about? And I'll start naming yeah. places in New Jersey. And that's me. Yes. I'm a Jersey guy doing yes. Jersey TV. The question is, it's not about me or my kids, but what is the struggle to keep our kids here in New Jersey to go to school? You're right. New Jersey has one of the highest rates of, you know, students leaving the state. Is to that go the to brain drain? It is. That's part of it. I mean, now you could also attract people from other states. There are some states that do that. They get people from mm. other places to come here. But New Jersey's high schools are fantastic. 
So the K-12 schools, everybody from every other state wants New Jersey kids. They recruit from New Jersey to go to Maryland, to go to Penn State. They recruit, they come So to we New have Jersey. the smartest kids. You've got the smartest <laughs> kids. And, that's, and we got to keep them here, but everybody else wants them. So that's part of the issue is that you have such wonderful, we've got such wonderful kids here that other people want them. So is that a marketing thing, job. Secretary, that, 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 part that, of it. that schools need to make themselves more attractive. I think we have to sell the schools a little bit to help the students understand. You know, what if you're from you're from South Jersey? Maybe go up to Montclair State and see, like, what is that that they have? What are the programs that they have? But also, I will say, it's an affordability issue, because if you're looking at an out-of-state institution and an in-state institution, and the out-of-state place is not that much more expensive than your in-state mm. place, it makes that decision a little bit easier. You but know? isn't it fair to say that the the level of state funding to higher education is a huge part of this? Many of those same presidents we have had on from uh, colleges and universities in the state said, look, state funding to higher education continues to either be flat at best and to be decreased in yeah. many cases. What are the plans of the Murphy administration to change that? Yeah. The state funding is an issue, and it's, as the institutions have grown, that funding per student has declined. So, you know, it's one thing to get, you know, let's just say it's $100 million when you have 10,000 students, and it's not, those aren't the ratios. Right. But then if you have, you know, 20,000 students, that same amount of money goes, you know, goes, goes less far. So that's part of the issue is the funding per student. And we don't really have any rational basis for funding right now. You know, there's no funding formula, and that's one thing I've What's this thing called outcomes-based funding? Outcomes-based funding is one way that some states are trying to improve college completion, get more people to graduate, close gaps in who graduates in terms of racial minorities and others. So uh, by rewarding those institutions that do a good job on things that are priorities for the state, you're able to kind of pay for what you want. Before I let you out here, you're from Georgia originally. I am. You said that New Jersey is a friendly, very friendly state. It is. Make the case. New, well, I've been more welcomed in New Jersey. The South has a way of saying that they're welcoming and not and not really being that way. I've been more welcomed here than almost any place I've ever. Is lived. that right? Yes, absolutely. We live in Medford, and people there have just been. Our neighbors are great. You know, we've just. It's been a really nice place. Well, um, we've been speaking to the Secretary of Higher Education in the state. New Jersey has a, a significant number of. Uh, it's private. Independence. Yes, independent publics. Yeah, right. Colleges. We've got 50. Well, depending on how you count, we also have a lot of yeshivas. So there's, uh, if you include those into the mix, there's over 80 colleges in the state. Not to mention the county community colleges as well. Yeah, that system's huge. Yeah, yeah. There are 19 community colleges, and they all fall within your jurisdiction. Yeah, I mean, I work with all of them. I don't tell them what to do, but I work with all of them. Yeah. Well, Zakia Smith Ellis is New Jersey Secretary of Higher Education. I want to thank you for joining us thank on State you. of Affairs. Thank you. You have an open invitation. I would love to come. You got it. Time. Stay with us. We'll be right back right after this. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. Yes, we finally had him in the House. We have him here. He is State Senator Michael Daugherty. He is a member of the Judiciary and the Education Committee. Good to see you, Senator. Good to be here, Steve. You are one of the most outspoken, interesting, compelling members of the legislature. You are not just someone who calls himself conservative, but you border on somewhat libertarian. Absolutely. Describe that. Well, I think libertarian believes in small government, believes in the Constitution, and the vision of our founding fathers that the government should not be doing everything, that it should be constrained by the Constitution. And it drives me crazy when I hear elected officials say, 
democracy, democracy, democracy. We don't have a democracy. We have a republic. That's right. And a, Repub a constitutional republic is much different than a democracy. Steve, I'm about to hear with a senator who happens to be a Republican, leaning libertarian, Michael Darden. Let me ask you, believe in the Constitution. Um, you're one of the first people, in fact, I think you were the first person to support President Trump of note in the state of New Jersey. Do you believe the president believes in the Constitution in the way you believe in the Constitution? And if so, make the case. Uh, yeah, I, I think he does uh, support the Constitution. Including separation support of the powers? Constitution of the United States. Uh, for one thing, uh, I think, let's go back to why uh, Donald Trump was elected. I think the reason he was elected is that Americans haven't had a pay raise since 1970. Uh, the bankers in 2008, instead of being sent to jail, were bailed out by the American taxpayers. And George Bush lied us into wars in the Middle East, right, with the weapons of mass destruction that turned out to be bogus. So Americans, sick and tired of the rig system, sick and tired of not getting a pay raise in 50 years, bailing out the bankers, sending our jobs overseas, fighting these stupid foreign wars, and Donald Trump was speaking to the American people. And that's why he won in, in 2016. But you've also been critical of the president in terms of his foreign policy, specifically as it relates to Syria, and you're saying, wait a minute. That's, I mean, I, I read Paul Molshine's sure. column. You can check out Paul at NJ.com and the Star-Ledger. Molshine wrote about you saying, hey, wait a minute, Donald Trump, that's not why I support it. I support you to stay out of there. Well, Did I have I, that wrong? Well, no, I, I think he's done certainly a lot better. I mean, you look at the Obama administration. Can we just deal uh, with the Trump administration? Well, I, I, I think the, you have to contrast, though. You know, Obama destroyed Libya with the help of Hillary Clinton. And then we've destroyed Syria. And Donald Trump, the entire time, we had all the candidates on the Democrat side. Hillary Clinton said, hey, I want to shoot down Russian planes. We had uh, the Republicans, like Jeb Bush, saying, how dare you attack my brother's foreign policy in the Middle East? This is keeping us safe. And Donald Trump said, that's a lot of bunk. Why are we destroying these countries in the Middle East? What are we getting out of it? So yes, Donald mm. Trump has, in my opinion, that uh, the missile strikes into Syria before we got all the evidence. I think those uh, chemical attacks with the white helmets, I think a lot of folks, a lot of reporters mm -hmm. are showing that the white helmets don't really have clean hands, that they sort of do these events. And so Donald Trump is certainly much better mm -hmm. than our previous presidents that were in love with starting all these wars in the Middle East. To, to that point, we're talking to uh, State Senator Michael Daugherty, <clears throat> outspoken, thoughtful, provocative on so many levels. I enjoy talking to him. I got to ask you something. You also um, serve this country. Yes. Okay. With distinction. Thank you for your service. We're doing this program right after uh, Veterans Day. Um, when, when the president um, says that, quote, he knows more than the generals, when the president says that um, we should no longer be engaged with NATO the way we are, um, when the president says what he does about foreign policy, and one more thing his seemingly inability or unwillingness to be criti critical of Vladimir Putin, who, let's just say, is not rooting for us as Americans. I've got to believe on some level. Even though you agree with the president on a lot of issues, you say, wait a minute, what's up here? No? Well, uh, what was the advice that uh, President Eisenhower gave in January of 1961 going out the door? He said, uh, here's a man who would spend his entire life in the military. That's right. Raised General. to raised to the highest levels, right? Uh, oversaw the World War II operation, then became president. Did he say beware of the generals? He, he, said, he said beware of the military <laughs> industrial complex. And to a large extent, uh, that's taken over our country. Mm. Uh, the Gulf of Tonkin, that led to the, the, Amon, that the, led Amon, to the right. increase of uh, Vietnam participation, it ended up to be 
It never happened. And the Lyndon in Johnson retrospect. administration. Yes. Well, where is and it so we've seen this time and again in American history. So I think Donald Trump, hey, the generals were whispering in Lyndon Johnson's ear back in the 60s, hey, we were attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin. We got to go in and set things straight. And it turned out we lost 58,000 men right. for what? Beyond what you're saying, which has a lot of credibility, the inability and the unwillingness of the president to be critical of Vladimir Putin and Russia for, and I don't know what the Mueller investigation is going to find. That's not what I'm talking about. But meddling in our elections, does it bother you that the president doesn't seem more exercised about that? I think... Because uh, you respect it, our I, system of elections. I, well, I, absolutely. We have a constitution and we put civilians in charge of our military. And so at the end of the day, the president is the commander in chief. But as a young man, when I was in my early 20s, mm -hmm stationed over in Germany at the height of the Cold War from 86 to 89, there was a real threat. It was called the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact was, was all the way up to the West German border. As a matter of fact, they built a wall to keep their people in. Right. And I was actually at a nuclear artillery unit. So we spent a lot of time in the field, a lot of time at night. You're thinking about, uh, are we going to do our job? We were going to do our job and, and nuke the Soviets if they invaded the West. All of that, Steve, has gone away. The Warsaw Pact has receded. It doesn't exist anymore. And we made commitments at the end of the Cold War, George Bush, that we were not going to advance NATO to the east. So, so, so we've, we've actually, Russia's not our enemy anymore? I think we should try to get along with Russia. Russia okay. has a country that's the size of Italy in its GDP. And if you take a look at the map, where NATO and Warsaw Pact was at the height of the Cold War mm -hmm. and where Russia is now, NATO has actually done the expansion. Let me bring you back home real quick. Uh, Governor Murphy's economic policy, go ahead, describe it. Why are you smiling when I ask you that? <laughs> go ahead, describe because it. Because it's so loaded. I don't know where you're going. Well, where do you so think, much. okay, what do you think, so of, what do you think of the governor's policy to say, we're the innovation state? Let's attract people who want to come here. Well, and, 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 I, hey, and, I think technology is great, technological advancement. We were the home of the pharmaceutical industry, continue to be for a century, and I think it's great that we should be. What would make us more competitive? Having a uh, better tax structure for companies, time and again, they talk about the high regulatory burden of New Jersey, the unpredictability, and the high taxes. Uh, everybody knows Quick Check. Uh, Quick Check's everywhere. It has great coffee. And in my hometown, uh, they, they said it was so difficult just to get a Quick Check built with all the regulatory burden, whether they could hook up to the sewer system or build a septic system. They said it was the most expensive Quick Check they've built anywhere, and they doubt they're going to be building any more in the area. So this is what New Jersey state government does. Uh, it, it drives businesses away. They're just going to, right now, I, we're in western New Jersey. Two seconds, go ahead. So uh, the Lehigh Valley, it's doing great. Why? Because they learned the lesson of the steel industry collapse, and now they welcome business. New Jersey could look at what the Lehigh Valley's doing and get those businesses coming here. You've been listening to State Senator Michael Doherty, who's been serving this legislature for how long? Since 2002. And I want to thank you for joining us on State of Affairs, and um, all the best. Thank you, Steve. Stay right there. I'm Steve Adubato. Let's continue the conversation. Listen, talk to us about what the senator just talked about. Write to me, at Steve Adubato, and I promise you we'll see you next week. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation, celebrating over 25 years of broadcast excellence. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at 2 Gateway. Funding has been provided by... Georgian Court University. 
Englewood Health, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, New Jersey Resources, New Jersey Sharing Network, NJM Insurance Group, and by Adler Aphasia Center. It feels like I've opened my eyes again And the colors are golden and bright again There's a song in my heart I feel like I belong It's a better place since you came along It's a better place since you